Welcome to Manager Tools. Teaching Decision Making, The Responsibility Ladder, Part 4. Here we go. This cast answers these questions. How can I teach my directs how to make decisions on their own? How can I help my directs make better decisions? How can I help my directs learn how to take responsibility for projects? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. If you enjoy our guidance about the management trinity, getting to know your people, talking about performance, asking for more, pushing work down, and our tools are helpful, one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, and delegation. The ideal way to learn about implementing them is to come to one of our effective manager conferences. One day, we cover all of the major topics. You practice feedback, you practice coaching, you practice delegation. I can't tell you the number of times people have said to us, wow, I thought I understood the tools. And then when I had to practice, I realized I've taken it to another level. Come to the website, check out our conference schedule, see us all over the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia and in Australia. See you there. Here we go. Another rung of the responsibility ladder. And this one, we foreshadowed this a little bit last last show is we're going right. to talk about your guidance, our guidance. I should, I should own up to it, believing in it. You almost always want to keep your directs at distress levels. Yeah. And I'm going to let you completely take all the slings and arrows on this one because folks will just go crazy. But when we walk it through, people will understand. I just think there's a common misconception in the modern organizational world today about happiness and taking care of your directs. And it's not actually the way things should be. But anyway, we're helping our directs up the ladder of responsibility so they can get to the point where they can make decisions on their own. You got to keep in mind that Effective decision-making, surely everybody gets that's that's a required skill. You have to be good at that. Someone who isn't ready to make decisions on a par with their colleagues, let's say their peers at a given level in the organization, is not really on a par with their colleagues. So if you have an individual contributor who's fairly new who can't make decisions and you've got others that can, that new guy who can't is, is not pulling his weight because decision-making and behavior are the heart of organizational productivity. The more people you have working for you who can make more independent decisions, which you can support, not ones that you would make, but ones that you can support, the more leverage you have, the more people you have working at higher levels, the more productivity you're going to get. That's right. And as I said last time, when the you know, managers, you, you have an obligation to get your directs to a level decision-making prowess that's consistent with the role. The, yeah. it's, not, it's not sufficient to let them get there on their own. You have an obligation to get them there. Yeah, she doesn't make good decisions, but you know, she's just a really sensitive person and she doesn't, uh, she doesn't really like to have herself challenged. So, she, you know, she's going to get there on her own. Right, and we should respect her by allowing her to, oh, yeah. to be in her little cocoon there and, and engage in her per- preferential uh, behaviors, right? Yeah, we, we just heard from a, from a global client that after training hundreds of their managers that one manager came to a, a public conference and he said, in both Mexico and China, our guidance wouldn't work because the Mexican and Chinese cultures, and for the record, folks, I'm saying what this guy said, but it's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life. This guy, who's a global HR person, says the Mexican and Chinese cultures are that you cannot tell them that they've made a mistake. They don't like candid feedback. They don't want to be told they failed. Uh, They don't want to be 
talk to about their performance if it's less than effective. And so we can't have a management system taught that does that if it's going to do globally. We'll still use this in Europe and America, but not in Mexico and Canada. They just get to pick grapes, right? I mean, it's like, this is just crazy. Yeah. yeah. I cannot imagine a more damning statement about another culture. I'm, well, I can. I'm sorry. I can. I find that offensive that someone, some Western European or American says, no, no, the cultures over there are different and that you can't, you can't talk to them about their mistakes. I mean, that's a fundamental part of, of, of management. The more you ask people to grow as opposed to just be comfortable, the more likely they are to make mistakes. To not be able to talk to them about mistakes is ludicrous. And of course, the comment the person made presupposes that uh, there's no trust, there's no relationship, but managers all over the world, and of course, we've trained thousands of managers in Mexico and thousands of managers in China, that's wrong. And there are people who believe it, that we ought to take care of people. But the fact is, organizationally, we're obligated to get people there. And since we also have an organizational responsibility to constantly improve productivity, we have to get them past each level as quickly as we can, within reason, within a sustainable time frame. So we have to get them being able to make their own decisions, putting together their own projects and getting their work done independently with oversight. I think the problem is, is if we do this, if we put this, this stress on them, right, to develop them, give them feedback yeah. and all that, they're going to be unhappy. And, and we don't want to do that as manager. We don't want to make our people unhappy, surely. Okay, so that, that presupposes something, that there are people out there who don't want to be challenged and who, when they feel the disappointment of making mistakes, that's all they feel. You know, that would imply that every football player, and here in this case I'm talking about secondary or American football, that every football player who goes to the gym and tries to do a rep and can't do one more, he's got done 20 every day and now he's going to try to do 22 or 23 and he can't do it, that he should never try that because he might be unhappy. And often what people forget is that unhappiness of failing to achieve something is balanced by the thrill of the challenge and the opportunity to get better and the feeling that he knows or she knows she'll have when she in fact, in fact accomplishes that goal. But you're right, too many organizations make this employee growth harder by saying, well, the employee has to be happy. And you say, well, no, you know, my organization doesn't really do that. Actually, many organizations more than most managers realize actually do pay attention to happiness. Um, they actually measure happiness. And folks, if you don't think your organization measures happiness, you may be forgetting that annual or biannual all-employee survey that you have to take, which measure job satisfaction and happiness, among other things. Job satisfaction is a dumb measure, by the way. We've been in plenty of executive discussions where organizations, clients of ours, were reviewing survey results where there were long discussions of what the organizations could do to make their employees happier. And I remember very clearly saying, no, you don't want to do that. And we would have this discussion that we'll share with you now. But look, the fundamental tenet here that's important, and, and happiness is a false god when you're thinking about your employees, it's because managers and organizations are not responsible for employee happiness. And it's foolish to think that they are or that they can have systemically 
an organizational-wide impact on it. Here's why. Organizations strive for productivity. Managers are responsible for that productivity with their directs. The idea behind focusing on happiness is that happier employees are more productive. Okay? And people say that all the time. Well, the happier they are, the more productive they'll be. This common belief is not true, folks. The data does not support it. It seems true based on most people's individual experience. Hey, she's doing really well. She seems pretty happy. But of course, all that is is confirmation bias because there are plenty of people who were absolutely driven and absolutely productive and you meet them and they do not seem happy at all. In fact, there are a lot of high Ds that you meet who are driven and accomplishing things and so on, who are gruff and hard to work with and uh, would say, frankly, I don't care about my own happiness. I care about success. Happiness isn't important to me. Success is. But even separate from those anecdotes, the problem is the causal relationship that everybody has in their head, that happiness drives productivity, is backwards. And the data show that happier employees are not more productive than unhappy employees. But what is true is highly productive employees describe themselves as happier than less productive employees. In other words, folks, it's productivity that contributes to happiness, not happiness that contributes to productivity. In fact, what ends up happening is, first of all, I'll come back to this point. Happiness is an internal matter. I can't make someone else happy. I can create an environment where they might, there are a lot of things that would cause them to be happy, but they control their own happiness. They can choose to think about sad things or difficult things or challenges or failures in their past or whatever, and they can make themselves unhappy. Even as I shower them, there's all kinds of stories, uh, human stories of people who get showered with positivity and then just sit and be negative. There's the story that in the alternate way of the young child who is a, an inveterate optimist, always sunshiny, always happy. And his parents, as he gets older, decides to teach him the real world. And on Christmas morning, they say, we've got a special present for you. And they walk him out to the barn. And in the barn, there's a gigantic pile of horse manure. And they're trying to tell the kid, hey, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes things are bad. And the kid starts jumping up and down and says, yay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And they just can't believe that this kid is so positive that he would want horse manure. And they say, why are you so positive? He says, well, with a pile that big, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Now, a bad thing happened to him and he was thinking good thoughts. I can't imagine I can find a person in the world who would say there is no one to whom if you give a great many gifts and positivities couldn't find a way to be unhappy. There are some people who, and I have to say it, unfortunately for them, and sometimes just due to brain chemistry, are inveterately, consistently unhappy. And so what happens is managers are told, we're going to measure your employee's happiness. So they start doing things that they think would make the, manager, the, the direct happy. That's bad because generally what managers will do is what would make themselves happy. Well, because happiness is an inside job, you don't know whether that would work or not. I just read some, some studies about telecommuting and how companies want to let people telecommute. And they say, look, 
we've discovered that there's less productivity in telecommuting, but a lot of people want more flexibility. So if you want to telecommute, that's fine. You know, there's going to be less chance for you to increase your pay. And almost nobody chose to telecommute. And the company said, telecommuting will make people happy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what you think. And systematically, any system-wide change uh, is going to have very little impact on happiness. Just because, again, happiness is an internal individual thing. And it's not generally impacted by system-wide stuff. But the company said, so therefore, we'll do flex time, but we can't afford it. So we'll do this thing where over time, flex time will be played less. And they'll, people are old, old enough to make choices. And they're making a choice for family time and peace of mind and so on and work family balance and so on. But we know that it's not as productive. And so we won't pay them as much. And almost nobody chose it. So my point with that, I, I didn't tell the story well, is the company was wrong. They thought they understood what levers would make people happy. But you're probably never going to fully understand. No, it's a certain. You're f- never going to full. no probably about it. You're never going to fully understand what makes every individual happy. What's more, we spend a lot of time and money on something that we think could make everybody happy. But it's not. It's only going to make some of them happy, and it's not going to make them happy in a particular way. And then we have to do something for someone else and something from someone else. And now we have all these systems and processes in place and special perks and so on. And the company spent a lot of time on it. And and here's where we go bad. Okay, Now the manager knows she's going to be measured on whether or not her people are happy, even though she really has no input on that. She can influence their environment a little bit, but ultimately... There's a lot of other things that are going to influence their happiness. Let me finish this thought. Now the direct begins to see the company as being involved and trying to impact on their happiness. And so they begin to think, what more can you do regarding my happiness? But those people begin to see the company as a place to make them happy, not as a place where they're expected to be productive. And in return, they'll get some rewards. Maybe not all the rewards they want. Maybe it the right company, all the rewards they want, but the company doesn't really want them to be happy so much as it wants them to be productive. It wants to reward them and it wants them to feel happiness on their own. That's the, that is the ultimate, um, the ideal of how companies work. And if you think you can start a new company somewhere, folks, that is focused on your employees' happiness, you yourself are going to go crazy because you, you cannot make somebody else happy. How they feel is their fault. How they feel is their business, not yours. Managers ought not to concern themselves with people's happiness because you don't have enough leverage over it. I suspect that some listeners will have a little bit of a problem with productivity. It just sounds so manager toolish or or, um, focused on just the benefits accruing to an organization. But folks, there's been plenty of studies that folks who don't feel they're contributing are not happy, right? That contribution is one of those things that drive us as human beings, drive our happiness. And those that contribute more, i.e. are more productive, are happier, right? There's tons of studies around the idea of contribution. So it makes you feel better. Contribution, productivity, very closely related in this case. Yeah. And so again, if you're not careful, you're going to try to make your directs happy. And then you can only hope that essentially what you're thinking is I can hope that that happiness will turn into productivity. If we give you something, Mr. Employee, you'll give us something back. We don't know that what we're giving you is exactly what you want because we had to design a system that would apply equally to everybody. But we're hoping you give us back the one thing we want, which is productivity. And the fact is this is hope and hope is not a method. 
I've seen too many cases where some system or some process or something was put in place that was designed to be make people happier and it wasn't rewarded. And I, I'm going to say it again, too many of us believe that others will be made happy by things that make ourselves happy. And it's not true. And look, look at some of the silly perks that Silicon Valley firms are famous for. I read one that was a list of like nine things. And boy, in my life, I could have easily stayed and spent a life in Silicon Valley. I started, I started consulting the Silicon Valley in 1995 in the run-up to things. And they were doing silly perks back then. And none of those perks appeal to me. But I'm not that different than an awful lot of Silicon Valley executives that I know. So what a waste of money. None of those things appeal to me. If they thought that would make me happy, it wouldn't. What I wanted to be happy is responsibility. And of course, what's infamous about those Silicon Valley perks is they're really popular. They're reported on when they get implemented. And then it goes unreported when finances go bad and they're taken away. And I got to tell you, if you think you can put in place systems that cost money to make people happy in the hopes of driving productivity, and then when money gets tight, you take those things away, your mindset better assume that productivity is going to go down because you've taken away people's toys. But look, here, here's the point of all this. What all this means for the responsibility ladder, ladder, believe it or not, is that it is incumbent upon managers to be willing to put their directs into a state of unhappiness slight unhappiness, okay, in service of organizational productivity, productivity results in growth. Now, look, here's the way to think about this. We've all said at one time or another, I'm totally stressed out. We associate being stressed as a bad thing. But yet all of us know that human growth is often rooted in the right amount of stress. Okay, no pain, no gain associated with going to the gym is sort of a classic over-the-top example. And they don't mean crushing, soul-rending pain. They just mean, I can feel it, and I'm going to hurt tomorrow after having gone to the gym. If we think about it a little more deeply, we realize that there are actually two types of stress. And this is not just true in our personal lives. It's a lesson in organizational life. You stress, and that's the word stress with EU in front of it, the EU like in front of euphoria or euphonia. Okay, eustress and distress. Distress is what we mean when we say we're stressed out. It's too much stress, too much pressure. When there's too much stress, our productivity declines. And in fact, when there are tests done on what the right levels of stress are and what people can handle and not, the place where you change from eustress to distress, the way they measure it is not how you feel, but when your performance goes down. You stress, on the other hand, is that kind of stress we feel when we're getting ready for a big presentation that we feel strongly about. It's getting excited about a new opportunity or even just excited about getting a lot done on a given day. It's the feeling of waiting anxiously or expectantly for a response to a request from a boss after you've put together a great presentation. It's that little bit of elevated heart rate that you have right before tip-off in a basketball game if you're playing. A friend of mine once said, you stress is the joy you feel having to get a lot done. Again, the joy you feel having to get a lot done on the day before you go on vacation, where everybody is incredibly productive because they have to be. Another way to think of it, think of yourself as having a stress meter that measures your stress all the time from zero to 10. Zero, let's say, is peaceful, restful sleep, and 10 is profound fear of imminent death. 
I've had bosses that made me feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) All day, your stress meter is moving up and down, depending upon what you're doing, what's happening to you, and, of course, how you're feeling about it. Psychology tells us each of us have our own place on that meter where the amount of stress we're feeling goes from eustress, an amount that helps us perform and live, to distress, where we start to stumble and become less effective and productive. For some people, that's four. For some people, it's three. For some people, it's eight. Since we're assuming humankind is, you know, the sample size, I'm going to say the average is five. It's a manager's job to get to know their directs well enough that we can sense when a direct is in eustress and when he has moved into distress. Why? Because the ideal place on the stress meter for performance is right at the boundary of eustress and distress. The maximum amount of work productivity that you can get before productivity starts to fall off. It reminds me, Mike, a little bit of the Laffer curve from 30 years ago. Folks, this is why we say, that's why why one-on-ones exist. You have to have a personal relationship with every one of your directs. You can't treat everybody like a millennial. You can't treat everybody based on whatever, whatever way you want to categorize people. Everybody's individuals and you as a manager have to understand where that line exists for each of your directs independently of the others. Yeah. You got to know where that line is and you must be willing to put the direct into mild distress For example, a few too many deadlines, a few too many deliverables, a few tasks that are beyond her grasp. Well, if for no other reason than because one's reach should exceed one's grasp, because that's the nature of humankind. If we don't, we are neither maximizing productivity of the direct nor challenging them into growth. And the only way you're going to find out where that line is, is to cross it. No, I'm not suggesting you cross it. If you discover after the fact that somebody's line is six, you don't need to put them at nine. But almost everyone needs to have more work to do than they can do. And when people complain that they have too much to do, that's a much better complaint that they have too little to do. And this ties in very very well with the idea of productivity per employee. Companies do not want to have too many employees because their profitability goes down because employees are the highest cost of an organization. And they care about that people feel the joy of getting a lot done. Whereas if you have too many employees, Then they start fighting over things. They end up doing things that are not useful. And management and individual contributors' uh, time is spent diverted from the core things the organization needs to get done. When you put together that need to keep people in, in very close to distress and in distress some or most of the time, but not too much, and because the responsibility ladder is so fundamental to individual value to the organization, we have to move directs up it as fast as we can in a sustainable way. And that means putting them into slight distress. And the best way to do that is to build a trusting relationship with our directs. That might be a recommendation for manager tools one-on-ones to know them well enough that we know their capabilities and limits and then test those limits regularly while monitoring their sustainability in order to help the person become more productive, achieve more, and allow them to feel the happiness of that greater productivity. Now, look, there are some of you who are listening who who think this sounds harsh. In the world of early 21st century human resources, tropes, and employee happiness, and even worse, employee satisfaction, this sounds very counterintuitive. 
But I, I'm sorry. I mean, this is manager tools, and we're willing to tell you what really is versus what is popular. It's really a necessary harshness. It's almost a tonic for growth and effectiveness. And as I like to tell people, I tell people this all the time. One of my favorite company logos is the Leo Burnett logo. For those of you who don't know, you, probably most people listening don't know that Leo Burnett was an advertising agency. He was founded in the 1930s. Uh, was famous throughout, I think until 2000 or so when they were sold or acquired. And they're famous for a lot of iconic American advertising. Of course, they were in the heyday of American TV advertising and so on. And for those of you Americans who might be of a certain age, you might remember uh, the Jolly Green Giant, Snap, Crackle, Pop, the Rice Pissy Guy, Crispy Guys, and Tony the Tiger, all three of whom which were invented by Leo Burnett. Mr. Burnett was also an exceptional leader and manager, and their logo is a hand reaching up into a field of stars. And the motto of the company is, reach for the stars. You may not get one, but you won't end up with a handful of mud either. If you want to be a great manager, if you want to show that you have additional competency and you have a desire or an interest in being considered at some point an executive, you have got to be willing to set aside this interest and happiness. You've got to accept the responsibility that you have to have all your directs being able to make decisions at their level and then, frankly, at your level as well, because if they can make decisions at your level, they'll definitely be good at making decisions at their level. You must have them all there as soon as you possibly can within sustainable reasons. And that means setting aside this interest in happiness as a primary goal with the hope that people are productive. And rather, think of it as, my job is to help them be as productive as possible. I'm going to give them as much as they can do and maybe a little bit more. And they're going to feel that sense of having gone to the gym every day and being sore in their productivity muscles. But they will have contributed. And as Vince Lombardi said, there's no greater feeling in mankind to lie exhausted and victorious on the field of battle. And organizations exist to get as much productivity out of people in a sustainable way as it can be done. Your job is both to, to exceed their, product, their own beliefs about their productivity and to keep it in a sustainable way. And it's a tough thing to do, but you can't do that just by worrying about happiness. Well said, my friend. Let's stop here and we'll, um, we'll continue our uh, climb up the ladder of yeah. responsibility um, next week. Marathon. <laughs> marathon. It's not a climb. It's a marathon. All right, my <laughs> friend. We'll see you. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll see you next week. Have a great one. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want the how-tos of management wherever you are, check out the free Manager Tools mobile app. It's available on both iOS and Android devices. Go to the Apple Store or the Google Play Store and download the Manager Tools app. Just search for Manager Tools in the respective store or go to the Manager Tools website, www.manager-tools.com, and you'll find the links on the bottom of the homepage. Once you've installed the Manager Tools app, you'll have access to all the Manager Tools and Career Tools shows anytime, anywhere you want. With easy searching of podcasts by category, using the map of the universe, or using built-in search functions, it couldn't be easier. Additionally, if you're Manager Tools personal licensee, you'll have easy access to all the show notes right from the app whenever you want. Go to the App Store and download the Manager Tools mobile app. You'll be happy you did. <laughs>